If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, let's turn together to the book of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk is, I'm sure, one of your favorite books uh, that you go to on a regular basis, Uh, but if not, it is located in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets uh, right after Nahum. If you're flipping through there, you can find, if you see uh, Nahum, then you're going to find Habakkuk right following it. If you want to use a pew Bible that's there in front of you, you can grab one of those. It's page 840 uh, in the pew Bible there. If you have found your way there, let's stand together. Habakkuk, we're going to start this morning. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 4, but we're only going to be looking, in fact, at verse 1 as we uh, have an introduction to this book. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 4. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, "'How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear?' I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. You can be seated this morning. We arrive today at this unique book in the Old Testament. And perhaps you might be asking the question, why this book after a study through the book of Philippians? Well, there's many places in the book of Philippians where Paul actually cross-references or there's some ties between the book of Philippians and the book of Habakkuk. If you recall, the large theme of that study through the book of Philippians was the joy of the Christian life, and that that joy was to be sought and found and lived at all times, both good and bad. Uh, whether things were going the way we hoped they would or whether things were going in completely the opposite direction. The Apostle Paul was the key character witness in all of this, that a Christian life could be lived with great joy, not based on circumstances, but based on who he was in Christ. I've entitled this study through the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Faith in the Midst of Chaos. Faith in the midst of chaos. For in this book, what we're going to find is a, such a beautiful picture of how true faith in God drives us to live a life of trust in Him, even when we can't understand what is happening around us. So let's begin this morning. We read these first four opening verses, but as I said, we're only going to look at that first verse as we kind of set a foundation and an introduction of where this study is going to take us over the next couple of months. Notice there in verse 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, anytime we do an introduction, we start with the first question, who is Habakkuk? Every time we begin a new series, we look at this. We look at the author of the book. Who wrote this book? Philippians, it was the Apostle Paul. We look at their life, their upbringing, their previous ministry, their conversion story, their life lived for God. And almost every other book of the Bible, you can go to there and you can find so much background information on the person who authored that book, with the exception here of the book of Habakkuk. All we know truly of this man is what is given to us here in this opening verse, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, it's not much, right? We have his name, Habakkuk, and we have his occupation, prophet. Now, there are some extra-biblical accounts of Habakkuk that occur, and I I give these to you this morning just to set a a small amount of context. Uh, In the apocryphal book, Baal and the Dragon, it's told that Habakkuk is of the tribe of Levi, the son of Joshua. 
Now, the story therein is, is pure fantasy, but it tells an account of how an angel commanded Habakkuk to take food to Daniel as he was in the lion's den for a second time. And when Habakkuk replied that he didn't know where the lion's den was there in Babylon, the angel transported him by a lock of his hair to the location so he could deliver the food there. In the pseudepigraphal book, The Lives of the Prophets, uh, Habakkuk is described as being of the tribe of Simeon and from the countryside of Belshazzar. And yet, in another Jewish tradition, it's suggested, again, with pure conjecture, that the Shumanite woman's son, who Elijah raised back to the dead, was, in fact, the prophet Habakkuk. Now, the account is believed to come from the similarities between Habakkuk's name and the words that Elijah spoke to the woman in that passage. And again, I mentioned these only this morning just to set an amount of context to understand that because there is so little information given to us about the prophet here that over time, people have tried to create ways to explain who this man was. But I think we can also, even based on these mythical stories, these these false stories about him, we can see that he was viewed by others as a very important figure in the scriptural writings. Now, the prophet Habakkuk is an interesting character because we don't know anything about his background. We don't know his family. We don't know any other ministry that he performed, but we can learn a little bit about him from his name. The name Habakkuk means to embrace. It means to brace, to to grab someone and to hold onto them. Now, Martin Luther said of Habakkuk that he, quote, signifies an embracer or one who embraces another or takes him in his arms. He embraces his people and takes them in his arm. He comforts them and holds them up as one embraces a weeping child or person to quiet it with the assurance that if God wills, it shall be better soon. So I want you to think about maybe a time in your life where someone has walked through a season of sorrow or difficulty, and you go over to that person, and because of your love for them, you wrap your arms around them, and you hold them, and you tell them, what do you tell somebody? He's like, it's going to be all right. You're going to get through this. And in a sense, this is what the prophet Habakkuk is doing for God's people. He's putting his arms around them. He's putting his arms in and embracing them and helping them understand that everything will be better soon according to the providence of God. Now, Habakkuk was, again, a prophet. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. And we, his name means to be an embracer, but that's really the only background that we can have of this man because nowhere else in the Scripture does it give us any more information about who this man is. But the second question we would ask ourselves is, what is the theme of this book? What is he going to tell us? What is he going to unveil to us? What is he going to open up? Notice there in the first verse, he says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, depending on your translations, if you have a King James, it may say burden. The word means the same thing. The word oracle, which describes of something that he saw, something that he visualized, also means burden because it was something heavy for him. Walter Chantry, a commentator, said this, usually the burden of a prophet was a heavy spiritual weight. It was heavy because of the contents of his tidings, most often a clear vision of coming judgments. This book of Habakkuk declares judgments to come. It was also a heaviness of responsibility to declare to men on earth what the God of heaven has shown him. So the book of Habakkuk is all about something that the prophet saw, a burden that he had to carry as a man of God. But there's also a question that many commentators have asked is, is that word burden also refer to the context and the people of the situation in which he is addressing? And I believe that the answer is yes, based upon the study of this book. And there are, in fact, two burdens that 
Habakkuk alludes to in this passage. And in fact, it is two different groups of people. And the first burden is the nation of Judah. This is where Habakkuk lived. He was of the nation of Judah. And you'll notice there in verses 3 and 4, he says, "'Why do you make me to see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises.'" Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Now, in just a a glance over that, you would think that the prophet Habakkuk here is speaking of those who are outside of the faith of God because he's talking about those who are doing wicked. But in fact, we find out later in this book, as we read further, that here in these opening verses, the prophet is talking about God's own people and crying out at the wickedness of them. Now, the second burden, the second group of people that Habakkuk addresses in this is the Babylonians. Now, here in the, uh, in the book, it calls them the Chaldeans, but it's the same. So uh, throughout this study, you'll hear me say Chaldeans, or you may hear me say the Babylonians. It's the same group of people. And look at verse 13 there of chapter 1. He says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? These are two burdens that the prophet bears here. The wickedness of God's people and then the wickedness of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. We see in this passage the theme of the heart of a prophet. As I already said, a prophet is an individual who is called to a very special ministry of God. He was one who was set apart by God to deliver the message of God to God's people. In my opening prayer, I talked about the fact that when we want to hear God's Word, all we have to do is open up our Bible and read the words on the page, and God is speaking to us. If we want to hear God speak in an audible voice, you know what you do? You read the Bible out loud. And God is speaking to you in an audible voice. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't this way. They did have some of the books of God. They had the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the first five books of the law there, and they had others, but they didn't have a time that they could go and, and just open up God's Word as we can today. And so God would send His prophets to come to foretell of things that were going to happen. He would send a man to come in to speak of judgment or to speak of God's promises and His blessings. And most often what we read from a prophetic account in the Bible is the public pronouncement that that prophet had been given by God. When we read through the other prophets in the Old Testament, we were reading their public pronouncement, what God revealed to them and what they were to take to God's people. And this was not an easy job. The prophet's arrival on the scene usually was a harbinger of bad things to come. God was going to send judgment. God was going to allow some things to happen. But in this book, we have something that's happening that's a little bit different than any other prophetic book in the Old Testament. Because what we see here is really a call and response between the prophet and God. And it's really not, in a sense, a dialogue for the people of God, although he addresses God's people. But in a sense, it's the dialogue between the prophet himself and God. We get to see the intimate encounter that the prophet is having as he prays and cries out to God, and God speaks back to him directly about the burdens that the prophet has. As I said earlier, Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he lived at a time when wickedness was abounding amongst God's people. And this is what, uh, this is what burdened the, the prophet so much. 
You know, just as we today, we understand that people who are not followers of God are going to behave wickedly. We understand that people who are not believers in Christ are going to behave in ways that portray them as not believers in Christ. But what burdened the prophet so much was as he looked around, God's people were the one who were doing all of the wickedness inside of the city. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this, he says, what a terrible picture. Sin, immorality, and vice were rampant, while those who were in authority and entrusted with the government were insolent. They did not apply the law equitably and honestly. There was lawlessness everywhere. And whenever anyone ventured to remonstrate with the people as the prophet did, those in authority rose up with strife and contention. And this is exactly what the prophet is pointing out in verses three and four. That's why he talks about the law being ignored and justice never being upheld, that the wicked surround the righteous and the justice comes out perverted. He says, he says, God's people, he says, the people of God are behaving wickedly and immorally. He says, and when anybody tries to stand up to say something, those who are in leadership say, well, just don't worry about it. You know, it's not a big deal. Uh, we're not going to, to deal with that in this moment. But isn't it interesting? You know, we, we tend to think of the time in which we live. We look around and we see the things that are happening around us and we think about how wicked and evil it is. But here, several thousand years ago, Here's the prophet looking here at the nation of Judah, and he sees the same things happening to him. Now, more troubling was the answer that God gives to the prophet. Because the prophet cries out here in these opening verses, he's basically asking the Lord for help. He says, Lord, would you do something for your people? Would you bring revival to the nation? Habakkuk was brokenhearted over what he saw. He cries out to God, why are you allowing this to happen? Now, we can assume that what Habakkuk hoped would happen here was what had happened in other places. When a prophet arrived on the scene and proclaimed the judgment or the coming judgment of God, God's people responded in repentance. God's people responded in turning back to him and turning away from their sin and their wickedness, a radical change that would direct God's people back to where God wanted them to be. Perhaps Habakkuk hoped that God would give him a soul-stirring sermon of repentance to awaken the people. But that's not what Habakkuk heard at all. God answered the prophet's request, but he answered in such a way that that quite literally shook Habakkuk to his core. Look at verse 5. He says, look among the nations, observe. This is God speaking back to Habakkuk. Be astonished, wonder. Because I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Let's pause for just a moment there. This is another one of those verses that oftentimes gets uh, misapplied and taken out of context in in the Christian world. I've heard this verse used in such a way uh, as to talk about, you know, oh, well, you know, the Lord told me that he's going to do something amazing. As it says in the book of Habakkuk, I'm going to do something in your days you would not believe even if you were told. But let's continue with verse 6. He says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. God answered the prophet's request by saying he was going to bring change to the nation of Judah. He was going to bring his people back into himself, but he was going to do it to, by allowing the most wicked people that Habakkuk could think of in the moment to come into Judah 
and to destroy the people and to carry them back, in a sense, back to God. He says now, he goes on to say, well, now don't worry, Habakkuk, the, the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are going to get their justice in the end. I'm going to punish them as well, but not before they come in and punish you. Now, can you imagine the prophet in this moment? Can you imagine what he's thinking about as he's, again, he's going to God with this burden on his heart. He wants to see God's people brought back to righteousness. And he cries out to God, and God gives him this response. Now, throughout this book, we're going to see a few different things. The first complaint of the prophet that we see here in the opening four verses. And then God's going to respond in verses 5 through 11. Then the prophet again will cry out with a complaint. God will respond to him again. And finally, the beautiful picture of all of this at the very end is that the prophet Habakkuk understands the divine providence of God, and he offers a word of prayer and praise to him. What we're understanding in this is that God is at work at all times, and that God's ways are above our ways. And that sometimes God does things that we can't understand in the moment. But he cries out, or he tells us, as he tells the prophet here, that he must trust in him and trust his providence. I think we can look at this passage and see many parallels to what happening is happening in our day and is what is happening in Habakkuk's day. And this is not to say that Habakkuk is a prophecy of our time. We're not saying that the prophet here is writing in such a way to describe what was happening in his time and also happening in our time, but that there are some interesting parallels. And the struggle that human beings face when we see things that don't seem clear to us. The prophet looked around and saw the wickedness of his own nation. We can look around and see the wickedness of our own nation. When we see a nation that has continue to just move in a complete opposite direction of what the Scripture lays out, that we celebrate. We don't just tolerate sin in our nation anymore. We celebrate sin. I mean, I don't have to go into detail this morning to tell you just in the past five to ten years the amount of wickedness and immorality that our culture now celebrates and puts on the news and proclaims as glorious and wonderful. We see the wickedness of our nation. But we also see the corruption of the church. Again, this was the prophet's heart that he saw that it wasn't just the wickedness of the nation, but the wickedness of God's own people. And we see inside the church, especially here in America, that many churches have begun to do what the world is doing and to tolerate sin and to tolerate immorality and to tolerate wickedness and not only to tolerate it, but then to lift it up and celebrate it. So I've chose Habakkuk because I think as God's people, that sometimes we have these same questions and concerns. Now, the third question that we would ask is, when does all this happen? When, when is the prophet Habakkuk writing this book? Now, again, because of the uniqueness of the situation, we want to know what's going on, but because there's not a lot given to us, we really have to look at some of the things that the prophet mentions in this book in order to try to ascertain a time in which he's writing this story. There is a lot of academic and theological debate on the exact timing in which Habakkuk is writing. Over the past several weeks as I've been studying for this, I've probably read at least 25 or 30 uh, different books, and, and all of them have a somewhat different approach on how they adjust the timing of the writing of Habakkuk. 
But most of them believe that the writing here would happen in one of two time periods. And that's either during the reign of King Josiah or during the reign of King Jehoiakim. Now, those who hold to the reign of Josiah point to verse 1-6, there where God talks about raising up the Chaldeans. And so this would put Habakkuk writing before the destruction of the city of Nineveh that occurred in 612 B.C. During this event, when the Nineveh was destroyed, this was really kind of the pivotal moment when the Chaldeans or the Babylonians began to rise in power. Now, if you remember from your study of the Old Testament that during Josiah's reign, there was a great revival in the nation of Judah. And this transformation as they came back to God seemed to be changing everything for the better. God's people were coming back. God's people were being revived. But unfortunately and sadly, it seemed not to be so much focused on a revival or return to God, but just a following of the king. Because when King Josiah was killed, that revival, that great move began to fall away. Josiah was killed in a battle against the nation of Egypt and Pharaoh Necho. And after his death, Jehoazaz was placed on the throne, and this was a very short-lived reign as Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, now in control of that region, took him from the throne and put his brother Jehoiakim in his place. Now, during the reign of Jehoiakim, there was a major battle at Karshemesh in 605 B.C., and at this battle, Nebuchadnezzar and, Babylonia, and Babylon defeated the nation of Egypt. And in defeating him and in pushing them back, it really turned the power balance in the Middle East from Egypt and previously the Assyrians now to the nation of Babylon being controlled there. And so it's believed by most people that the writing of the prophet points towards the events that would occur during the deportation of Daniel and others uh, when they were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately in the destruction of the city that would happen in 587 B.C. So there's about a 25-year stretch of time between 612 B.C. and 587 B.C. This seems to be the best period of time to assume that the prophet is writing this book. But what is the overall purpose? We've talked about what he talks about, that he's crying out to God, but what is the purpose? God here, through his prophet, it really is giving us an inside look of how we are to understand the will and the ways of God. In our Sunday school class this morning, it just so happened in God's providence that we were discussing God's providence. And the understanding from the Word of God that all things happen according to God's perfect will and plan, both the good and the bad. God is not the author of sin, but He uses even the sinful actions of people to accomplish His purposes and His ways. God was not causing the Babylonians to act wickedly, but God was able to use their wickedness to accomplish His perfect will and way. He was going to bring the people back to Himself, but He was going to use the sin, wickedness, and idolatry of the Babylonians to do this. But it brings us back to the age-old question, why? Now, for those of you who are parents in this room, you know that every child goes through a period of time where everything that you say to them is greeted with the response, why? Go over there. Why? Don't touch that. Why? No, we can't do that. Why? And this period seems to go on for eternity. And really, I think the inquisitive nature of people doesn't really go away. We just learn that there's a time and a place to ask those questions. As adults, we don't greet everyone with a response of why, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're thinking it in our head. Somebody tells us they're going to do something, and we're like, well, why in the world would you do that? 
We're inquisitive people. We want to know why. We want to know the understand. We want to understand the reason why. And this leads us to a place that perhaps maybe more than any other place that we ask that question is when it comes to what God is doing in our lives and around us. And I say that we have it in our thoughts because perhaps you're like me, we almost feel guilty to verbalize that in our prayers. But the question is there nonetheless. Somebody in our family dies tragically. The question is in our mind, God, why would you allow this to happen? We, we look around at our nation. We see the wickedness and, and the immorality that's growing. We see churches that are doing foolish things. And we ask, God, why? Why would you allow this to happen? Just as the prophet did, he says, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And why are you not doing anything about it? There are times when as Christians, we struggle to understand the purposes of God. Because being a Christian does not mean that we escape the trials and tribulations of this life. We get sick. We get diseases. We lose our jobs. All these things happen because sin has destroyed the perfect intentions of God, and that sin has long-lasting and reaching consequences that affect each and every person on the face of the earth. But we often feel guilty in asking such questions as the prophet asks God here. Why? How long, Lord, will you allow this to go on? Because as Reformed believers, we, again, have a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God in all things. All things work together for good for those who are called by God according to His purpose. We know that Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We know, we believe, we trust in God's sovereignty, and perhaps we even think in our mind that it's almost unchristian to ask God that question, God, why would you do this? But we can see in many places in Scripture where great men of God, all who powerfully believed and trusted in the sovereignty of God, expressed their questions. They expressed their doubts as to why God was doing the things that He was doing or allowing things to happen. Psalm chapter 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 94, which was read earlier. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 8. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. We need to understand that it's okay to ask the question why as long as it's done rightly. We're not asking the question why in a denial of God's sovereignty. But we ask the question why, I think, as the prophet did here, because he wants to understand. He wants to understand God's purposes and his ways. But when we ask those questions, we must prepare ourselves, as the prophet learned here, that the answer that we receive may not be the answer that we expected or the answer that we hoped to receive. Now, ultimately, the prophet's prayer was going to be answered. God was going to bring his people back, but he was doing it in such a way that the prophet would have never imagined that God would do. And this is the trust that we have in God's providence, that sometimes he's going to do things in our lives and around us that does not make sense to us in the moment. 
But we have to trust in his providence to know that ultimately he is doing everything perfectly according to his plan, and that in the end, it will all work out for his glory and for our good. So why this book? Because in this book, we're going to see the prophet have a very frank conversation with God about his sovereign will and purposes. And I hope that by the end, that as Christians, we can understand how we properly speak to God about questions that we have. And that we can learn to have the faith that the prophet speaks of here later on in this book to trust God in all situations. One commentator said this, he said, the silence of God in human affairs then as now has been ever difficult to understand. But this does not mean that there's not an answer and that divine wisdom is incapable of coping with the situation. All is under his seeing eye and everything is under the control of his mighty hand. This book is one that on the outset seems to maybe leave more questions than answers. But deep inside this book, I believe, is hidden this profound wisdom of trust in God. And as Paul told the the church at Philippi, to have joy, to have confidence, to have complete trust in God's working in ways, no matter what's happening around us, here too the prophet Habakkuk comes to this great understanding that even though we may not know the answers in the moment, that God is working according to his sovereign will and purposes. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us alone in this world. Lord, that you did not set the course of human events into action and then sit back on your throne and just watch. But Lord, that you are active in ruling and reigning and that your hand is in the midst of everything that happens here upon the face of this earth. That there is nothing that happens outside of your divine will, purpose, and permission. That Lord, we can trust and know that Lord, as believers in Jesus Christ, God, that you are working all things out for your glory and for our good, even when it doesn't make sense. Lord, we confess our struggles to you this morning, that there are times when we cannot understand. But Father, we pray that you would help us even in those moments to trust, to have the faith that is necessary, to believe your goodness and your sovereignty. Lord, as we begin this study, Lord, we pray that we will walk away from this, Lord, with such a a grander picture, Lord, of your operation on the earth. That as we look around ourselves and we see the things happening in our own period in time that cause us to question, to cause us to ask that reason why, that, Lord, you will help us to have confidence in you. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name, amen.